0: There's a new documentary on Netflix I watched, it's very important, I want to share it with you. Also, the Democrats said Harris won, Republicans said Pence won. I will do some smarter, deeper, better talk about that, but first we will start with listener acknowledgements on the Cora Truax Show. I also have a fun rant going to do in just a moment because I think rants are fun not just when I do them but I like to hear other people's rants one of my favorite podcasts actually has a, uh, a segment called gopher gripes and it's just people with gripes like don't you hate it when the back of your jeans gets wet and on, on, on a rainy day and you can feel it like it's stuff like that like just things to gripe about I think they can be funny and so we're going to do one of those here in just a minute as well uh, but we'll spend most of the day on my reaction to the vice president's de- vice presidential debate, some deeper thoughts from that and the Social Dilemma documentary, a documentary called Social Dilemma on Netflix that I want to highly recommend to you and see what we can learn from it. We'll do some other stuff as well. But first, my name is Corey Truax. Thank you for listening to His Radio Talk and finding the Corey Truax Show wherever you find podcasts. I am grateful for both. I also get to serve as a pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church, and Beachwood Church meets in Greenville, South Carolina on Sunday mornings at 1030, and you're invited if you are uh, without a church home. We would love to have you any given Sunday morning. I want to start here. To all of you, like people I know personally, and then some of you are just, are quote, just listeners, as in we don't know each other personally. I know I uploaded the show last, last week incorrectly on the podcast. I found out pretty quickly, but thank you to the many of you who wanted to make sure I was aware of my own uh, ineptitude as a producer. You know, those of you listening live, you won't know this if you listen to the radio show instead. I uploaded like an hour and a half worth of content last week because I just did it all wrong. So to my podcast listeners, I know I'm inept. I'll I'll, I'll never need to be told. I'm a broadcaster, not a. I'm, not, I'm, I'm even I want to be broadcaster. I'm certainly not a tech guru. So yep, I, I I know it. Also, yeah, I know you can hear my dog sometimes. Do I know it's unprofessional? Yes. I have no other option. What do you want me to do? I have no control over my dogs. They are poorly behaved little. Angels. I'm just kidding. They're not. They're not that. Uh, but I, I, that's. I've been getting more feedback. You know, we can hear your dogs barking sometimes. Yes. Yes, I know. It's part of the ambiance of the show. Consider them to be a co-star. Okay. It gives you some context for where I sit. I sit near my dogs, and then they get upset at things. They. One of them thinks everyone's trying to murder me, and so she is hyper vigilant to make sure that her barking stops the murders. And so thanks to thanks to Maya. She's actually sitting next to me right now, looking at me as we're doing the show. And then I just wanted to give a quick thank you. There are there's a few of you now that go over to the podcast, you you did it on Anchor, and you support the show regularly, and I just I mean financially. Thank you. That means the world to me. I I just went over and looked at those analytics as I I tend to look at the analytics. The the idea of doing this full time is attractive to me and I, I, I don't look at the money page over on Anchor all that much. It's called the money page. It shows you your ad revenue and, and donors and you just start seeing those names of people who give regularly and I just, I, for a minute, I, I kind of got blown away. I was just very grateful for you folks and so I wanted to, I never I never do that on the show. I never actually say thank you to those of you who sponsor the show uh, with, with monthly gifts and so thank you for that. I'm from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. That you would find enough value in the stuff that comes out of my mouth from week to week, to give to it means the world to me. And thank you. And if you want to follow along with them and do such this, do the same thing, give a dollar a month to the show. or well, there's or more if you want to, uh, you can do that over at Anchor, Anchor.fm, or on the Anchor app. Here's my rant. I got pretty upset. At QT. I love QT. I was at Quick Trip, the one in Berea, on the way to North Carolina University one morning. And you've you've been in a, a gas station situation where you're making your own coffee, like a Sphinx or a QT. Especially at a busy morning, let's say between 6.30 and 8.30, when people are commuting to work, they stop in to get coffee. There is only so much counter space, and there's usually more humans than counter space. And so you end up having to wait to adorn your coffee so if you're not a black coffee drinker and you want to put stuff in it and you have to wait for a second here's where i started to fume internally if you were over the age of 15 you need to know what you want in your coffee all right there, there needs to we got to quit with the taste testing guys where you put in a Splenda, you get a slap a slap of cream in there, or, or some non dairy creamer, and you give it a little stir and a little taste, like a little. Mm-hmm. Want to know if it's good or not? Hey, know what your coffee your coffee order is. If you, I actually asked my sixteen year old uh, nephew, "Do you drink coffee?" Yes. What do you want in it? He said, "One cream, three Splenda." Thank you, son. Thank you for knowing decisively what you want in your coffee. Also, one know what you want in your coffee. Go pour it, put it in there, stir it up, walk away. People got places to be. That's one. Number two, does the rest of the world need to take chemistry again and relearn solubility? When something is hot, it helps dissolve other substances. Coffee, quite hot. It's very good at dissolving the substances that you put into it. All you need is a little bit of emotion. You don't have to stir it for an hour and a half to make sure it's all put together. And also places like uh, Splenda, Equal, Sweet and Low, those companies, that's one of their their qualities that they they sell is solubility. Like we've designed our product to dissolve easily and the creamers have been designed that way. I know this is a dumb rant, guys, but I got upset by it and I think it's, I think it's worth doing before we get into the heavy things. So know your coffee order, know how you want it, make it and go. And also you don't have to stir it and stir it and stir it. Really like three or four little circles and you really got it. It's good to go. All right here we go important things debate reaction vice presidential debate reaction especially seeing i, I don't know when i'm going to put this show out for the podcasters but there it appears there's not going to be a second presidential debate because of the whole virtual thing and then to pull out not, where it stands right now as I'm talking to you is that there will not be a second presidential debate so we can use the vice presidential debate as a as a good stepping off point to talk about deeper things number 1 reaction I remember a a take I had a few years ago about debates. If you really want to know the winner of a debate on technicality, like the, the person who gave the most substance, the best way to do it is don't watch it, don't listen to it, get a transcript, read it. When you read a debate, you get the full denotative information. This is the stuff that this person said. These are the things this other person said. And you don't get affected by facial expressions or eye rolling or cadence or how someone looks even. You don't get distracted by those things because true, false, right, and wrong aren't determined by cadence and performance. They are determined by what actually adheres to the truth. I've said of myself, I have an unfair advantage in two ways for, uh, I'll give you two examples. One, I have an unfair advantage in job interviews. I think I've only, of I've interviewed for quite a few jobs in my lifetime, and I think I've only not been offered it one time. And it's because I have an unfair advantage in interview settings. It's what I do. I run my mouth. I, I'm quick-witted, nimble on my n- nimble on my intellectual feet. Usually well prepared in terms of uh, prediction, predicting questions that are coming. So I have an unfair advantage. I might actually be incompetent at the job itself, but I just happen to be good at talking to you. And so I have an unfair advantage in interviews. The other the other unfair advantage I would have is in a debate setting because I love performance. Remember, I was in a band. If I would have in a different life and if I could dance, I would have been in a the theater. I'd have been trying to be some kind of some kind of performer on a stage. I love performance and pizzazz. It's one of the reasons my entire life is made up of me talking into microphones. I love performance. And so I have an unfair advantage in debate because I perform. And some some person might actually have be way more informed, have much more depth of thought, but they're unbelievably boring, and so they don't do well in debate settings. So the best way to measure debate is read it. And if you read the vice presidential debate, it wasn't even close. I' I have nothing negative to say about Kamala Harris, really here. I'm just telling you that Mike Pence won the thing. If you read it point for point, even with Mike Pence's propensity to not answer some questions, he did that a little he did that a little too much for my liking, where you where he would ignore the question asked and then answer a different one. There's a there are until there are better tactics for that uh, because sometimes you get asked unfair questions, and a lot of the questions he avoided were unfair questions. But the way you do that tactically is you go at the question. You acknowledge the question. You acknowledge it as unfair, and tell tell the moderator why it's a backward question. And then you use the rest of your time on whatever it is you want to use it on. So he did some he did some question avoidance that I didn't I didn't like. But in terms of bringing argumentation, responding to her arguments, and then bringing specific statistical information, this wasn't close. Mike, Mike Pence quote, won that debate, if you read it, if you read the debate, then you'll, uh, I, th- I think most folks would come to that conclusion. And then folks that wouldn't come to that conclusion, of course, they, the argument would be if you're a left-winger, well, she made the points I agree with. So even if I read it, she's making points I agree with. I'm going to come back to this. Okay, so that's one. Re- reading debates is the most fair way to know who, quote, won it when it comes to the substance. Number two, I want to give... Uh, a word to one of the controversies of the debate, and then I actually wanted to get into uh, some of the issues so when they uh, they talked about COVID, taxes, uh, Green New Deal stuff like that. I wanted to get into. There was, of course, after the debate, the it almost seemed like pre-planned trope around media. Everybody did it. Um, all the internet sites, it was on Twitter, CNN, every, MSNBC. Before the debate was over, it was mansplaining. mansplaining. Here's Mike Spence. He's a mansplainer term I can't stand one of those made up things and then uh, specific to his interrupting of her which I don't ever like I think I said to I think I said to this microphone a week ago I, I wish that in debates they never talked to each other and if they did talk to each other at all that it would be very limited in a time period where they're allowed to interact with each other and I think the more dignified thing to do and, and even comes across better to people is to be deferential if someone is talking past their time, or even jumps in over you, if you'll just be quiet and let them be rude, you can you, you could you can actually make a point about yourself, about your own dignity and your own your own uh, be, uh, own level of deference, as a matter of grace. And so, no, I don't I don't like when anyone interrupts anybody. I think it's super rude. But, but here's here's my problem. There's a hypocrisy level to being. Angry about it because he's a man and she's a woman. For left wingers, there's an hypocrisy here that is hard to abide, because here's left wing ideology: men and women are utterly equal in every way, and they might not even exist. There's really no such thing as a man or a woman, because if you ask for a definition, there's really some struggle in in defining a woman, because a woman can be can be someone who has male anatomy, according to the folks on the left. Like it's or some folks on the left. So you have. You have this issue where men and women are supposed to be utterly equal in every way. Also, it's kind of hard to tell what is what is a man and what is a woman in this particular worldview. And then if you add in the idea of a, a desire for lack of chivalry. like So chivalry is m- men recognizing we have different roles than women and doing chivalrous things. Even small things, opening the car door, opening a door... Uh, used to be things like taking off your hat when a woman came in the room, standing when a woman came in the room. Just respect for women because we know that there's a difference and it is a it is a man's role in the culture to defend, protect, honor women, right? So that's supposed to all be dead. That's patriarchal society. And then at the same time, I'm supposed to be mad at Mike Pence for treating Kamala Harris like a man. You know what Mike Pence treated her as? He treated her like she was a man, which is the exact thing you said you wanted. You know who Mike Pence interrupted a little too much in 2016? Tim Kaine. He interrupted Hillary Clinton's vice presidential uh, p- partner. You know who interrupted each other a lot just a week before? Donald Trump interrupted Chris Wallace and interrupted Joe Biden. Like, goodness, he couldn't stop himself. You know, And the reason? Because that's something men do. We interrupt each other. I don't, I because I understand the rules of social etiquette, but... That's that's a thing. Men do. And so you, you gotta have to pick one here. Either we can either men can treat women like men, because Mike Pence would would interrupt any any other man, or we need to go back to chivalry and actually embrace the idea that men and women have different roles in the culture. That's what that, that's the other option. But you clearly can't have both. It's not it's not fair and it's not intellectually honest. When we return, I want to get into the actual substance of the debate. We'll do that. When you come back for the rest of the Cory True Show. Welcome back to The Cory Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me. You will find me there. And we'll have a good time with one another out there on the social medias. Looking back at the debate, the vice presidential debate, between Senator Kamala Harris and the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. And we'll get into the issues of it here in just one second. I wanted to look back on this moment of the debate. We'll get into the issue of it, but first... You have, you had a good moment, I thought, for Mike Pence, where he was exposing the Kamala Harris flip flop nature, where she was for Medicare for all, but now she's now she's not, and then she also wasn't in the campaign that she did both things, and she just vacillated wildly on Medicare for all. They they seem to have their own Green New Deal, but also the Green New Deal is undoable. But that's also true, and there was this this moment where I thought. This ticket, this Biden-Harris ticket, was beatable. I, I'll, I'll say that. They, they were beatable. They were beatable. I can't believe he, he didn't get, that Pence didn't get the dig in, because I know I would. have. It would have been part of my game plan. I, was going, I would have used something to get to the reality that really one of the, her, her best debate performance of her life was supposed to be when she basically called Joe Biden a racist. And demand of her, whatever happened to that? What? What you you stood up on a stage and said you were utterly offended that he, that Joe Biden had said nice things about pe- people like Strom Thurmond and Trent Lott, basic, and people who had been segregationists. You you tore him up for that. You implied he's an actual racist. So why is it okay now? Why is it okay that Joe Biden said those things? Can you can you help me out on that? When you said incorrectly that Joe Biden was for forced busing. Um, and then uh, you said that, that would have kept a little girl in Oakland out out of school. School she went to, and that little girl was me. And you started selling all your T-shirts that that little girl was me. So Joe Biden was a racist monster less than a year ago, and now he's the man. Can you talk about that some? That that's part of why they were a beatable group because there's a inconsistency to them that right now that, that would expose some other issues. Like right now they're trying to give off this impression joe biden isn't the crazy one there's some crazy stuff on the left but joe biden isn't that he's a just a fairly moderate milk toast uh, n- n- nothing nothing of a candidate he's just nothing not, he's a nobody he doesn't have much of an ideology well okay but you're you're associating yourself with people that just change their minds like crazy you change your mind like crazy as well joe how do we know how do we know you? you're not going that direction so th- that would have made them beatable the, because they are attached to a movement that does crazy things. And if there would have been an ability of the Biden-Harris opponents of exposing that, they were a beatable group. But the bottom line is Donald Trump can't help himself. He He is drawn to attention like a moth to the flame. He just needs to be the center of attention constantly. And if he would not do that, if he would find a way to not make news, now granted, getting COVID nineteen, not that's not that's not in his control. But if he would just shut up and let the news cycle look for oxygen somewhere, if you, you these two were beatable, but Trump could, can't stop himself from being the center of attention. Consider like what happens here if they if they do win. And it's looking more and more like that's that's probably what's going to happen. It's still, certain it's definitely still competitive, but it. It's lo- it's not looking great mathematically, but consider if they do win. This has been the least scrutinized set of candidates ever, like Biden and Harris, M- even like less scrutinized than Obama was. Uh, certainly less scrutinized than Clinton or any Republicans ever scrutinized. Like that should mean something. And I'm not even I'm not saying anything about what the outcome should be. I'm just saying it is the case that. Biden-Harris is a very unscrutinized group because all we do, everybody is obsessed with Donald Trump. He is the North Star of the culture. He became the centerpiece of a lot of people's morality. He is the definition of evil. Everything opposite of him is the definition of good. That's how a lot of people on both sides, those who worship him and those who despise him, they let him control their minds and control their hearts. And if, if he could have been able to get out of the way, they would have had a much better shot because... This is not a strong two. I mean, Harris and Biden are not a strong two, two two strong candidates for this. All right, to the actual issues of the debate. The first thing was COVID-19. I think that was the first thing. And uh, I'm not going to cover all that. just the the things that I want to in this debate. I don't, I think the question I I would want to ask, like if I would have been Pence, I think I would have just kept hammering on, and what would you have done differently? What's what is the actual policy difference? Like of the policies, what do you do? You think we should have done differently? He did a little of that, but he, but, but certainly not enough, because the the answer. If I, I actually would love to know the answer, it's very important. So there was a 15 day to slow this 15 days to slow the spread. That was the policy put in place, and then resources put in place to start getting what we had, PPE, ventilators, and stuff to those to the states that needed it. The and that, that, that went too slowly at the beginning, but not out of line with the rest of the world. I think that's really important. Like That's another point I wish you would have made. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and pull it up here on World worldometers as I talk. But when you are looking for the stat, like the stat that would help us determine who did a good job and a bad job, if there is such a thing when we're talking about a, a, a pandemic, the United States is about 10th uh, for deaths per million, so of your population, we're right there with the UK. We're close to Italy. We're close to lots of lots of countries like us around the same income level. That kind of things when it comes to to, to wealth and uh, medical system. So, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sophistication. I mean, ours is more sophisticated. So you would think we could do better uh, with caring for those who got it. But we're not. We we aren't wildly out of step with the rest of the world on COVID response. So he could have done a better job with that, but the key question is, what do you think should have been done differently? Because when I've a- asked that question or heard it asked really, because I haven't had that discussion with anybody, it's always about personal behavior. Well, J- Joe Biden would have worn a mask everywhere, or Joe Biden wouldn't have said a bad things about said bad things about masks. He would not have said this thing about uh, liberate Michigan. And to that, I go for, for a lot of those behaviors. I'm I'm on board. Yeah, that was bad. A lot of that was bad behavior. Sure, hey, that's not a policy. You know, that's not a policy. When the president tweets something, that doesn't carry the uh, the power of law. So, what I'm asking you, what policy would you have done differently, Kamala Harris? And the answer is nothing. We would have behaved differently. We just personally we would have behaved differently, and that's not policy, and therefore not particularly relevant to the discussion. So that is the COVID part. Where he what he should have covered is we're. It's all of this is tragic. But we're not out of line. Like we, we didn't handle this in a way that we're just... It's an unbelievably bad case when you compare us to other countries. It's not true. And second, you, unless you can tell me a solution, I don't even really want to talk to you about this. That's, it's, that's one of my uh, principles at work, one of my principles, principles when dealing in any organization. If you are coming with a with a problem, the best way to be received is if you're coming with a list of potential solutions... And if, and if the problem has you exasperated where you, you literally don't know there's a solution, that's okay. But I do know if you don't have any other options, like you don't know if there's a solution, you shouldn't be vice president of the United States. So you need to be able to say, here are the action items you didn't complete as a government that we would have completed, and she couldn't do that. Uh, so I say, of course, I say point to Pence, and everyone on the left would say point to her, but I'm, I'm giving you the logic that I have on why that was uh, a bet, a better round for Pence. The taxes part I wanted to get to, because these two, Biden and Harris, they are quite confusing on the tax thing, because Joe Biden does keep saying, we will repeal the Trump tax cuts. So no, like day one, repeal the Trump, dump the Trump tax cuts, which by the way, I wish politicians would speak more accurately. You can't just do that. <laughs> like You you got to have Congress pass something. Like you, you need the House to do their thing. You need the Senate to do their thing. You can't just walk in the White House and say, I repeal it. Like Michael Scott on the office walking out into the the main part of the office and saying, I declare bankruptcy. And Oscar has to go to him and say, you know nothing happens if you just declare bankruptcy. Same thing to Joe Biden. You can walk in the White House all you want and say, I repeal the Trump tax cuts. Yeah, that's not how. Have you read the Constitution? Do you know how law works? That's no. That's not how that works at all. So you can't do anything like that day one. Part two. The... The Trump tax cuts do cut everyone's taxes. They, they gave a tax cut to literally everyone. The only, I guess the only exception is people who already weren't paying federal income taxes. You can't get a tax cut. It's literally impossible because you don't pay any. When, you're, when your rate is zero, we, we can't go negative on a tax rate. And so, so I'm going to repeal Trump tax cuts. That means it is true that what Mike Pence says... They are telling you they're going to raise your taxes. Well, that's true. Because Joe Biden keeps saying he's going to repeal that tax cut. And then Kamala Harris comes in, we're not going to raise taxes on anybody over 400000 Oh, okay, well then, you're actually not going to repeal the Trump tax cut. So you two need to get your junk together. Because he's saying the one thing, and you're saying the other thing. You're going to need to reconcile that. But then just generally on the economy. That was, I thought, Pence's, that was Pence's best Ten minutes or whatever it was, because that is that would have been the argument if COVID never happens. What what they're what they're arguing about is th- this has been an historic run of growth up until COVID happened, and not just uh, not just stock market growth. I mean, we're talking about incomes, incomes were of, of, in every bracket were, were increasing. It was just all across the economy there was good news, and that has very little to do with Donald Trump. I want to make that clear again donald trump signed up with a team and that team happens to have the better economic ideas and the ideas that lead to growth donald trump is and he enacted some things that he said in his in previous life stuff that he said during the debates he wasn't for he's not a free market capitalist by any stretch you can call him a crony, capital, crony capitalist maybe but he's barely a capitalist philosophically you know how i know because i can play you i can play you audio from 2015 or 16 where he says to Chris Wallace, actually, from Fox News, oh, we're gonna get everybody the greatest healthcare. Well, who's gonna pay for that? The government's gonna pay for it. So he, he Bernie Sanders' healthcare twice in 2015 because he doesn't actually believe anything. But the, the actual policies have always led to growth. Ask John F. Kennedy, Jr., not Jr., ask John F. Kennedy. That's we had great growth because JFK, a Democrat, comes in and reduces the tax rates, mostly actually on wealthy people, increasing investment, increase, increasing the spending in the economy, and it juiced the economy. So that that taxes thing, it's I, I was annoyed by Harris and Biden not saying the same things. Like you two are going to have to figure out what you're actually thinking about taxes. And two, we know what policies lead to growth. We know what policies lead to stagnation. And All of the history of the world shows it. We we have been the most free market in our economy, far outstrips everyone else's except China. And China only got there because they started being free market. When they introduced that in the late 90s and early 2000s, they started their growth rate as well. And they have the, something of an advantage to having a billion people. So when you're measuring GDP, by by nature of having a population that big, you're going to have faster GDP growth. So, and we're doing that. We are outstripping them in economic size with our 330 million people. So the, ta- the economic part, the taxes part, the, that was my reaction there. Then a couple issues. Um, Green New Deal. That's another one where they don't have, they don't have a good answer. On on the Biden-Harris side, there's not a, well, are you for that thing? You know that money exists. You can't spend $40 trillion. You'll, you the, 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 what you'll do is damage the economy. You really can't, technically can't bankrupt the country, technically. But yeah, you'll just wreck the economy. I um, mean, the, the dollars that do come in and buy our bonds aren't going to anymore. And you, you will, you'll cause economic collapse if you did such an, a, a, ter- a horrific idea as a great new deal. Like it, I, I said at the time, I, I don't understand why they didn't. If you're going to write something that fantastical, go ahead and guarantee everyone a unicorn. There's no reason not to. The Green New Deal is as realistic as guaranteeing everyone a unicorn. So just go ahead and do it already. And they're, they have no cohesion and no coherence about whether or not they are Green New Deal proponents. And the reason why is they know it's quite unpopular. They don't want to lose their left-wing base. They need the, the base to show up. And so they don't want to absolutely disavow it. But they also don't want to embrace it because the vast majority of the country that... The uh, vast majority of the country is a... Too much of a generalization, because the vast majority of the country doesn't know anything. They don't know any better or worse. But the people who show up to vote, it, at large, don't like the Green New Deal. Another one they, that I, I'm finding that they couldn't get, they being the Biden-Harris, and then Harris being the the symbol of it, because she happened to be on the stage, that they can't get their stuff straight on is fracking. The, the, fracking is what, in part, saved the economy during the Obama years, the Obama years were quite stagnant in terms of growth rates, but we had this new thing come along called fracking and it, it, was, it was revolutionary in terms of keeping the cost of consumer gasoline down and also disempowering the Middle East because we were able to get gas in a different way where we didn't have to get as much through OPEC. We disempowered places like Iran, Saudi Arabia by this thing called fracking. I saw one study out of the, ah, come on, Corey, the business school at Penn State. Can't remember the name of that business school, but it's one of the big ones. That talked about the impact of fracking during those uh, 2008 to 2016, when it became a a thing during the Obama administration, and what would have happened without it. And It mostly impacts consumer spending. Because, guys, you remember after Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, we had gas prices for a little while of, Th- over three bucks a gallon and four bucks a gallon. And we didn't see that diminish all that far up until fracking. And fracking came along and the share of a family's income that went to just putting gas in the car got back to a, a reasonable place. The share of companies' budgets, that was travel costs, whether that be trucking companies or airline companies, whatever it was, that that got back into a, a rational level of the budget, a a rational portion of the budget of American households and businesses uh, went towards gasoline. So fracking almost single-handedly saved our economy. While it was being stagnant, it was a thing pushing it along. We, We even saw that out west. People were moving out to Montana and the Dakotas to Wyoming for these fracking boom towns where You have people showing up from all over the country just looking for a job, because during the Obama years, we had horrific economic stagnation, we had the most months ever under a single administration with over 10% unemployment, and fracking saved the job market, because they weren't just jobs, people were going out there making some real money doing fracking. And so fracking is generally popular, it's not popular with environmentalists, but especially in western Pennsylvania, where it employed a ton of people, there and Pennsylvania is a swing state. That's why I, I mentioned that. And in Southern Ohio, where fracking was significant. It's, it's this popular thing. So Joe Biden wants to be for it. And he says he's not going to ban it. And, and then at the same time, Kamala Harris will talk talk down on fracking. So th- they're not on the same page there, too, because they run into the same problem. The, the conservative idea is almost always the more popular... Uh, not almost always... More than half the time. It's the more popular idea. And then you have your left wing that you don't want to lose. And so they see, they have a confused message on those things. And then, final one. I want to come back and talk about it. But there is an issue here of chaos versus order. And I'm not just talking about protests. The fact that they won't answer questions about court packing, it it's troublesome. And I'm not advocating here for any... By the way, I'm not advocating for voting for Donald Trump by saying all of this. I'm not doing any of that. I am saying, as I said a minute ago, this Biden-Harris ticket is one of the least scrutinized ever. And there should be at least some scrutiny given to whether or not they're worth a vote. You can make your... I I, I believe in making that decision in a vacuum. You can decide, is Trump-Pence worth my vote? And if you you decide yes, cool, fine, whatever. If you decide no, that's fine, cool, whatever. But then it's a secondary vacuum decision. Now, is Biden-Harris worth, worth my vote? If you decide yes, all right, I guess. And if you decide no, that's okay too. But I am for those decisions being made in vacuums, not one being dependent on the other. And all I'm trying to do here is say that that debate exposed some things and brought up some other questions that are worth, ex- are worth examining when deciding where that vote goes. I will come back to this final point from that debate and the issue of chaos and and court packing when you come back for the rest of The True Act Show. It is occurring to me that if I don't hurry through this, we're not going to get to the social dilemma of this documentary I want to talk about. So let's get moving quickly. Welcome back to The True Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for listening. One other reaction from the debate is we we really have no answer on court packing. They, they, Biden-Harris, they need to answer that question. It, it reminds me back when the Affordable Care Act was processing and Nancy Pelosi had that very famous quote, we have to find the bill to find out what's in it, or excuse me, we have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. It's almost like right now with uh, Biden and Harris. You have to elect us to find out if we're going to break the country. Because I, I, that's some um, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna say it. That is essentially suicide bombing the other two branches of government. We have a system and a structure of government, three co-equal branches that check and balance each other. The act of packing the court, B- Biden and Harris winning this election and having control of the Senate, having control of the House, and expanding the court by two seats, and then Biden putting two people in, that is a revolutionary act. That is something akin to the American Revolution. It's just nonviolent. It is starting a brand new government. It's it's superseding, taking over, having a coup of the Americans over the American system of government, so much so that I think it would lead to the dissolving of the country. And I am not being hyperbolic. If there, If any of you know me, some of you know me personally, some of you know me as a, figure in the media or whatever I don't do hyperbole I don't exaggerate it breaks the country and leads to dissolving it because I would want to respond in like kind I know there's I have I have ideas about what states could do and even talk about tax remission I wouldn't I wouldn't be opposed to starting to start talking about secession again you, you can't break the rules, you, and you can't overturn the system and structure of government. And court packing is that. And you also have to ask, how, when does that end? Because, all right, so you court pack. And then Kamala Harris loses to Nick Haley, Nikki Haley in the next election. Well, then Republicans are just going to have to respond. Because when you respond with weaponry, when you respond with aggression, it is often the case the only thing you can do is also be aggressive. Because In this case, the first shot would have been fired by the left. The right would just buy, buy out of defense of itself and literally its existence would have to win the next election and then to make it 13 justices on the Supreme Court. The one thing we, we can do is diminish the power of all the government so we stop even having the possibility of blowing the entire system up. But the one thing you can't do is just try to keep the systems powerful and then get... One hand over, one side over the other, with uh, that that kind of dictatorial power, we can't do it. And there should be a clear answer, Biden Harris, need to answer the question: Will you commit not to, to not packing the court? And the fact that they can't, I want to be clear about something that that is one uh, th- that is a behavior of theirs that is akin to some of the Trump behavior that breaks down our institutions. So when when Trump talks in ways that diminish our faith in the CDC or the Department of Justice, as he has done. Actions like this, saying we might pack the Supreme Court, are of equal damage to our institutions. The judiciary is one of the, the branch of government that's supposed to be the most non-political. And if you, tur- if you turn it into something that grossly, obviously, into political, partisan hackery you will have broken the government. You would have broken the country and it should lead to the disintegration of the union if they need to be asked that very hard question. And here's my final thought on the debate. I have, I think, expressed ambivalence about the outcome of the election on November 3rd. And I want to adjust that some. I think think what I've expressed is, yeah, I don't care. I mean, just whatever happens. But I do have some adjustment to that. I think both outcomes come with challenges. That's my emotion. That Biden losing is an objective good. It's good that the people that back a Biden administration aren't going to be empowered to impose their will on others. That's good. I will also say, Trump losing... Just having that personality out of here, this guy just he has really been bad for the culture. Well, he was good for the economy, but he has been bad for the culture. Just to get that kind of poisonous voice away and get back to some kind of maturity, That's an objective good if we could get some of that back. But I look at the outcome of I look at the, the outcomes and I look at both and go, There's a different set of challenges, politically at least. There's just a different set of challenges to either one winning. So it's not ambivalence, like I don't care. It's a a question of which set of challenges are we going to have? Because we're going to have some. Whoever wins this thing, we've got a set of challenges to address. And that's my true emotions, not ambivalence, but concern over either one. It's just different concerns and maybe a higher level of concern with one over the other. Okay, let's do the social dilemma thing. Out on Netflix, there is a documentary I highly recommend to you called The Social Dilemma. It features primarily people who have worked for Google, Facebook, Twitter. Those are the primary ones from the early days and are now out of those companies looking back on their time there and how those things operate and giving us a look behind the curtain of the most powerful and influential companies in the world. Facebook and Twitter genuinely change cultures. I, I would argue that without Facebook, the Green Revolution that almost happened in the Middle East, and the, and somewhat did happen, some of the stuff that happened in Syria and rising up against, is that Assad, Bashar al-Assad, and then the, ri- the rising up in the revolution in Egypt, without Facebook, that probably doesn't happen. Without Twitter, some of those don't happen. There is power in these groups, and they they start telling the story of how these groups do business. And here's uh, here's my primary reactions. I think it's th- give me. Oh, I'm gonna call it three. Let's see. If we let's see if we can keep it to three. First thing from that documentary is it's an affirmation of a lot of things I've said to you about the motives of the companies. Now I don't resent this, but their point, their their the reason the reason they exist is to make money. Google, Facebook, just start start on those two. You can toss in Twitter if you want. Why do you exist? To make a profit. That's the that's the centerpiece of business. We're here to make money. All right, well how do we do that? We need users. It's actually <laughs> very funny in the um in the documentary somebody said there's only two industries that call their customers users and it's drugs and social media or drugs and software and I was like, oh that hurts, man. That it's drug dealers and software makers that call their customers users. But if you're if you're there for profit, how do we make money? I need people on this site. I need a mass number and I need a high number of hours. So everything we do as a company, if you're Facebook, Twitter, your Google, Google owns YouTube so if i need if i know that my way of monetization my way of profit is to get people as users but i also need to keep them on the screen so the thing i've said to you many times is they have no interest in you being smarter they have no interest in you learning something new or being challenged all they want to do is keep you on the screen don't Press the button to close your phone. Stay on this screen. It is in part, and they illustrate this really well in the documentary, how they've helped our polarization. Because here's the reality. There's a group of people who have a news feed on Facebook or Twitter and it's curated to what they want to see. So if they're a very conservative person like me, it's going to show me all the stories that say I'm right. It's going to show me all the opinion makers that affirm me in what I believe. And if there's a story out there either straight news or a good argument against something I believe, they're never going to show me that because it would seem like I don't want it. Uh, that that person, that conservative person wouldn't want to see this thing that challenges them. Hey, they might even turn off the app. They might go somewhere else. We got to keep them on the screen. And so, because, and they'll do the same thing with a left winger. And so when a left winger and right winger are talking, they literally are working with two different sets of facts. There's a lot of stuff that person on the left knows that the person on the right doesn't know. And there's a lot of stuff the person on the right knows the person on the left doesn't know. Th- this is one of the things I love about my Facebook feed is it you can't figure out what direction I'm coming from. My Facebook feed is quite diverse and I think Facebook figured that out about me. I like that. I like to hear lots of different things. And so they show me lots of different points of view and they show me theology things. They show me a lot of dog videos. They show me a lot of videos of cats being rescued. I like those things. They show me political stuff from both sides. And so it has led to a lot of our polarization because of, because of the desire to keep you on the phone. The illustrated part of it that I didn't know that was, I don't, I don't want to call it terrifying, but it was unnerving. The, if you stop using your phone, like you decide you're going to turn off the social media apps for a while, go on a fast basically, like some people do for social media, they'll obviously notice. They'll, they'll notice. The, the software will notice. Uh, this person hasn't opened the app in two hours. Let's send them a notification. Let's send them a notification that one of, their most pop, one of the pages they visit the most has a new post. So they send you that notification. Ping on your home screen of your phone. Let's say you don't respond to it. You don't go look. Oh, we're gonna to have to post something else. Like here, let's send them a new notification that there's a trending breaking news story to get them to open up the Facebook app or the Twitter app. Ping. I oh, didn't work. Ah, how are we gonna get them to open their phone and get them on the screen? Because we do know this: once they're on the screen, we can keep them. Man, we can keep them scrolling and give them the right content to keep them there. And so, oh, well, let's show them there's a, a new post from like an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend. Let's let's put that name on their screen. See if we can get them to open their phone for that. Oh, goodness, that is some dirty dealing. But it's it, it's how it works. And they show in the documentary how they can even monetize it by second. Like this this person being on the screen for this long saw this many ads. It means that we made this many dollars off of that person in for, for that much amount of time they spent. And so that was stuff I mostly already knew, and so it affirmed a lot of what I already knew about social media and how they operate. One other takeaway from that documentary that I thought was insightful and I wish I would have thought of is this. Silicon Valley, with Microsoft and Apple, starting out, we'll start with those two companies. What they started as was building tools for other people to do their jobs, so building actually hardware, so building computers, better computers, building processors to make them go faster, building Microsoft Word or Excel or PowerPoint. The idea was we want to provide tools to companies and businesses and consumers in, in their own home or, or building better email systems for, for communication. That's what we want to build is tools for businesses and people. What's changed is the software being developed now is the end to itself. It's not a tool for anyone to use. It is the product. The the whole point is just use the software. Just use the app. Not because you're trying to accomplish anything else. Just use the app. That's a new way to think about software that you would create it for the purpose of its use to not accomplish anything in the quote real world. Near the end of the documentary, they start running through a lot of solutions and a lot of them had to do with a ton of government regulation that I was not a fan of. Ultimately, you know where I stand. Everyone is responsible for themselves. Yes, Facebook is trying to manipulate you. Yeah, a lot of people are out there trying to manipulate you. We saw it with the Cambridge Analytica story back with the 2016 election. A lot of people are trying to use the information they have on you, and they have plenty of information on you, to manipulate your decisions and behavior. That's what marketing is. Marketing is trying to manipulate you into doing something the company wants you to do. But we are all responsible for ourselves. Just because someone tries to manipulate you doesn't mean you have to be manipulated. We can all be responsible and not be manipulated by the efforts of a Facebook or a YouTube or a Google or a Twitter or whoever else. So I wasn't into any of those solutions. But in the after credits or during the credits, those insiders that have gotten out of Silicon Valley, they talked about the real stuff the real solutions on our devices are things like this. Turn off notifications. I did this a couple years ago because I was definitely a a social media addict. There's there's no question that I was. Even some of you have noticed, I think, uh, I don't post much on Facebook. I used to be a serial Facebook poster. We're talking two and three, four times a day a few years ago. And now it might be might be one a week. Sometimes there will be weeks and weeks go by where there's nothing on Facebook. in um, and, it, and I'm, I'm definitely more active on Instagram. It's a it's a more positive atmosphere. It's and so easier to create content doesn't specifically have to be branded in a in a way that like the, for the podcasting world but any in any event I turned off notifications. I think that's a really strong way to go. Um, where your phone doesn't make a noise, doesn't tell you that anything's happening. And so you have to go find out. So I never get one of those little red circle dots that everyone has on their apps when something happens on Instagram I don't know until I open the app if something happens on Facebook I don't know until I open the app the I don't even know when I get email um, the I turned off the notification for that so it doesn't make a sound and it doesn't my phone doesn't vibrate so unless it's a text and I usually have my text turned down too or a call I don't know about it. I think that is one way to take power back that your phone can't call out to you. Your device can't say, come look at me. So that was one big, uh, one big takeaway. Uh, one final thing on this I wanted to, to say was ultimately we have that Philippians 4 concept that we are the people that want to dwell on whatever is true and honorable, what's pure, what's lovely, what's commendable. We dwell on the things of excellence and a lot of times and what we're seeing on social media is not those things and so it's incumbent upon us to be careful about those. I've run all out of time. we will be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.